0: Welcome to Speaking Out. we
1: mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. talk a little bit about uh, indigenous constitutional recognition. Those do
2: With Larissa Barrett, It's a fresh view coming. On, on ABC Radio.
1: We only need look to these stories of, of the struggle of Aboriginal people and, of course, of people of colour all over the world to say the people who won these fights, they spent like Mandela, decades in jail. They spent years and years as guerrilla fighters. Their life at risk every day is that you've got to be in it for life. And I see that my work is just a reflection of the courage of people who, who don't give up.
3: Writing, advocacy and activism, raising creative voices for social justice issues. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. For generations, Aboriginal storytelling has shaped culture and society for the benefit of all. In colonized societies today, too often the First Nations stories and those of people of color are either dismissed or relegated to secondary roles. But in light of the Black Lives Matter movement, the need for First Nations voices, both political and creative, is even more evident. And it's often said that the arts reflect and challenge societal values. So, what insights can be gained by moving voices that have been marginalised to the centre? How can our creative practitioners and thinkers help us reshape our society? And how effective can storytelling be in advocating for social change? We'll explore these themes in greater detail this evening with award-winning authors Sisonke Masamang and Tony Birch. Sisonke is a South African-born writer and political analyst whose work focuses heavily on race, gender and democracy. And Tony Birch is a critically acclaimed writer. His novels include Blood, Shadow Boxing, and Ghost River. His most recent book, The White Girl, was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award. Tony has used his talents as a writer to draw attention to social justice issues affecting Indigenous Australians and the environment. Let's listen in now and we begin with Tony Birch as he reveals his greatest influences.
1: The most dominant influences in my life have always been women. I come from a family of remarkable women and whose backgrounds are remarkably diverse and they've all been remarkably strong people. I think the women in my life have paid a price for their courage so that when I published my first novel, Shadow Boxing, which is now 14 years ago, my mum and all her old mates turned up and I call them the Carlton Crew. And these were women who had grown up in the inner city of Melbourne in the 50s, 40s and 50s. And um, I said almost involuntarily, uh, these women would, would die for their children. And Unfortunately, some of them have died for their children and their bodies have been used to protect children in, in quite literal ways in some cases. So it's always women who have taught me the way forward. And I would have to say in a personal sense that I've really never had strong male role models in my life, not in my family. Um, They've always been a little bit hopeless. But I think as I've got older, I've really gravitated towards men who I really value so that it's certainly not a statement against men But I now find that while I don't have a lot of male friends as I've got older, to have good men in my life who actually understand their place in the world as not being part of sort of patriarchal dominance is equally important to me. So I suppose I'm at an age now where I've got that balance. And finally, I mean, as you would know, Larissa, I've got five kids and grandkids and five of those children are women and they're all tough women as well. So I also either have taught them or learned to behave around them. So my adult daughters also keep me in check. So that if I ever slip up occasionally and turn into a grumpy old man, they, they tell me to go and sit in the corner.
4: <laughs> Thanks, Tony. Sissanke? Hi, everyone. So my own personal background and influence is very much my family. My father was a freedom fighter. He was a, a Zulu man who left South Africa when he was just a teenager, to join the freedom struggle inspired by Nelson Mandela. Before Nelson Mandela was a saint, when he was still a dangerous man. (laughs) And so I grew up in a household where my mother was also a very strong woman. And so I grew up in a household where my dad's full-time job was being a guerrilla fighter. And where the community we were raised around were all political activists and people who had either left their country in order to fight apartheid, or who were from other surrounding countries in southern Africa who were doing the same thing. You know, I remember on every other Sunday we used to meet as kids and we were part of a club called the Young Pioneers. And the Young Pioneers were essentially a communist organization for children around the world. And we learned Marx we learned tracts of Das Kapital and we learned to appreciate Che Guevara and Fidel Castro. So very, very steeped in politics from the time I was really little. You might even say indoctrinated. So that's definitely my own personal background. And so I come to Australia when I'm in my 40s already and arriving in this country in terms of an exposure to you know, South Africa had always been known as a place where there was racism of a special kind, right? That's what they called it in the rest of Africa because it was settler colonialism uh, and the settlers were there to stay. And so coming to Australia feels incredibly familiar. And so there are many, many similarities between my own country and this country that is slowly making its way under my skin. So, yeah, very very political background, political family, and I see the the world through a lens that is very much shaped by that politics.
3: Thanks. I felt a connection with you. My father would give me books like Animal Farm to read when, you know, everyone else got books about princesses. So I feel like I know that childhood. Um, There's obviously a myriad of ways that writing leads to social change. And you've both written in ways that have spoken to inequality, but I think also, which is why I think your work resonates with me, really used the power of story to change hearts and minds. So I was wondering if you could maybe reflect, and it's a very broad question to allow you to really meditate on the ideas, but how you conceptualise the link between your work, your writing, and your social justice values and attempts to make changes in the society in in which we're living. And again, Tony, I might start with you
1: yeah one of the things that I often feel as a writer is that when people ask me about whether my work is you know something that would hopefully bring about change i'm i 'm often very doubtful or or not that optimistic or maybe i'm i 'm just modest but i i don 't feel that um that's the primary objective of my work it 's a bit of a sort of a, a schizoid issue though because as a reader, I can actually as you both have just alluded to. I can point to writers and books that have been enormously influential. So I have to accept that writing can have great influence on people. So I would hope, therefore, that that my books do have an impact. It's hard to measure the extent of that impact. And I think that we're in a a terrible um, global political situation when the forces of of racism, of conservatism and and right-wing populism are so... All pervading at the moment that, you know, that these people they will set out to destroy an oppositional or a liberating narrative, and I think we 're in very dangerous times in that way. but I would say that I, I never write a story or a book to create an overt influence. I, I always believe as a fiction writer in my fiction work that you 'd be true to the story for its own sake in the first instance, so when I set out, say, to write The White Girl, I was just fixated in making sure that when I created the characters of Odette Brown and Sissy in particular, that I was true to the characters and true to their situation. So I'm working in a very intro way inside the book with the characters and the situation. Obviously, once the book is out, you do hope, of course, that readers who pick up the book are taken by the ideas. And in the same way that listening to the heart-wrenching story of Barbara in your documentary... I would hope that people, when they read the novel and read about the plight of Sissy and Odette, that they really are taken with both the shocking racism that they're confronted with, but also the incredible power of women in in that novel. I think that raises also a dilemma that you alluded to, Larissa. I think the power of documentary is such that it doesn't give um, sceptics a lot of wriggle room to get out. And I think that as someone who taught at universities for many years, The fact is when you're writing fiction although it can be influential people who don't want to confront the realities of racism can literally lean on the fact well but this is fiction and therefore it doesn't have the same authenticity and clarity of say non-fiction or even as you're talking about documentary that deeply frustrates you because of course aboriginal ways of telling history is through story it's through story and that I would, as a historian, and as you know, I worked as a historian at the University of Melbourne teaching Aboriginal history, I would say that the situation that Odette Brown faces and that Sissy faces, I think it would stand up to any historical interrogation. And in fact, it's probably too, well, it's mild in that sense. I want it to be a love story. I want it to be a story about tenderness between women and children. I could have written a novel which would be horrific in the sense of what people would have to confront. And that horrific narrative, again, would stand up to scrutiny when you consider what Aboriginal people have gone through. But my way of approaching the subject was to say, I want people to read a book where they understand these people have families, they have loving families. And and in that kitchen that Sissy and Odetti have it, in that bathtub that they have a bath in, It's all about the love and tenderness for each other. And that's what I would want people to take from my work, that we love our children, our parents loved us. And I was reflecting very personally while you were talking that I came from a very, very traumatic home. I accept that. I'm glad I was in that home rather than away from that home. I would not have survived in an institution. And I know kids who were taken from home for dubious reasons or for any reason, and once they're in that system that you've talked about, they never came back.
3: Susanna, so yeah, your reflections.
4: I kind of want to reflect on what Tony's just said. I mean, I, I really loved The White Girl. I've told you this myself, Tony. I really, that, um, those scenes in the bathtub were beautiful. The relationship between Odette was just gorgeous, and it was also incredibly familiar to me, you know, as a... Black woman who's grown up, you know, loved by and taking care of Black women my whole life, it felt incredibly familiar. There were also uh, so many parallels with the legal system of exemptions and so on that have been mimicked across, you know, settler colonial societies. And so, again, I learned a lot historically from that, what was a fiction book, but very much, you know, felt like it didn't have to be. I think a lot of the way in for how we, and maybe I'm skipping ahead here, but a lot of the way into conversations about really difficult and painful things about all of our pasts is through love. I think those in much the same way, Larissa, that you spoke about, you know, representing families and that, the case often turns on people understanding the family story rather than you know, double jeopardy or the legal mechanisms. I worked for many years in the human rights field making decisions about strategic litigation, et cetera, et cetera, and that was always the case for us. So I think the stuff around fiction and nonfiction is really about how people wanna come at stories. As someone who writes nonfiction, I'm always jealous of writers of fiction because they have, I think, the license to be able to make certain decisions that I think sometimes the real world doesn't give us. So I think it's much of a muchness. I think it's like, if you have straight hair, you want curly hair, but I do think that a lot of the way into these very difficult conversations is through love and is through incredible and emotional connections. You know, for me, because I came to writing later in my life and because I had the arrogance to think that the writing I would do would be a continuation of the work I had done as an activist. And I quickly came like Tony to think, "Mm, I don't know, (laughs) A, anyone is reading this, and B, if they are, why are they going to change their mind about anything? And so I think there is a certain kind of, you have no idea what happens to your words when they're out in the world. And that's okay. I think what's important is how you think about what your story is trying to do. And for me, it's the story is always about trying to complicate the frame. So is a simple narrative good enough? And typically the simple narratives that are told about other people, other meaning people who aren't the norm, meaning people who are black, people who are brown, people who are indigenous, other stories are typically very simple stories. And we know that that's just not the case. Those of us who have lived those lives know how complicated how passionate, how crazy, how beautiful and wonderful we are. And so that to me is always what the story is about, is about explicating that complication as much for ourselves as for anyone else who happens to pick up the book.
3: Thank you. Tony, even though you, as you say, your novels are just really story driven, but you do have your characters navigating enormous structural, historical structural inequality, and particularly the resulting poverty of that structural inequality. And within that, I think some of your key characters, particularly your female characters, show a certain type of agency and resilience within that framework. It feels like that's a very important part of your worldview and the stories you wanna tell. I was just wondering if you could reflect on that and maybe talk about why why that seems to be such a strong thing for you. And in addition to that, do you see that that's how change happens is from that type of individual agency and resilience as opposed to broader structural change?
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously, as I alluded to at the outset, I mean, part of the influence of the way that I write or the way that I deal with issues of, of inequality and damage are, uh, through women, and again, that's based on you know historical learning and observation from being a very young child right through to adulthood. So, yeah, the women again in my life, I grew up in, in Melbourne in Fitzroy, and yeah, grew up in extreme poverty. And and yeah, if I started to tell my kids about it, again, they go and sit me in the corner. They don't want to hear these stories anymore. But it's hard to comprehend the level of poverty that we survived with, and I can't imagine that for my children or grandchildren. And really, hand-to-mouth existence. And I was actually thinking the other night, the level of resourcefulness of women, the ingenuity of women to find that night's meal. So you're talking about growing up in a house where you could wake up in the morning and the women in that house have nothing to feed their children that night, but by that night there will be a meal on the table. And how they do that could be anything from scavenging, scrap metal, to pawning stuff in the pawn shop, to child mind someone during the day, all sorts of ingenious strategies. So... I look to the the historical reality of, of my past, looking at The White Girl as an example of this, is that there are two things at play, is that clearly I draw on personal experience, but it was a book that my expertise or understanding as a historian was important. So I'd written previously as a historian a lot about Aboriginal women and their political struggle on reserves and missions, which again were incredibly tenacious, incredibly resourceful, and so... It's hard to, again, Larissa, you said earlier, if you didn't, it's almost, could this be true, right? You're talking about women whose lives were threatened, threatened with the removal of their children, threatened with the removal from their home on a reserve, and told, if you write one more letter of complaint to the government, you'll be put out and you'll have no support. And then after the woman received that letter, she would sit down at the kitchen table, get out a brown paper bag, write on it in pencil, another letter of demand and send that off to the government. So part of it is again the historical reality of the situation. But I suppose the other issue here, Larissa, is to understand that change for Aboriginal people, it is such a long struggle. You have to understand that change can take a generation. And for young people as activists, we need to, if there's anything I like to impart on young people, is is that this is a long haul struggle. It's not a struggle that you win in six months, you know, six years you're talking about women who fought for decades to get changes to the legal definition of Aboriginality, for instance, the the eradication of the so-called half-caste act. And I have written about women who wrote letters of demand to government for 40 years. And when you consider the disadvantage that they faced, and that dogged determinism to keep going, these are the stories that we need to hear and tell. So that you know, today when we're thinking about Black Lives Matter, we're thinking about something that I'm interested in clearly in climate justice, whatever the situation is that we face, and however despondent we might feel, I firmly believe that we only need to look to these stories of, of the struggle of Aboriginal people and, of course, of Indigenous people and people of colour all over the world to say the people who won these fights. Yeah, they spent, like Mandela, yeah, decades in jail. They spent years and years as guerrilla fighters. Their life at risk every day is that you've got to be in it for life. And I see that my work is just a reflection of courage, the courage of people who, who don't give up. And it's not a polemic. It's not a didactic way of storytelling. It's just the way that I see the world. These are the people that I that I love. And these are the people, I want their stories to be front and centre.
3: Thank you. Sasanke, so did you have reflections? And I'm also interested on this issue of structural change. Your writing's incredibly reflective on the power of words and women's voice, and you've observed enormous st- structural shifts and continuing barriers in both Australia and South Africa. So I was wondering if you could perhaps share your reflections on what it takes to make real change and the role of women in that change.
4: Yeah, I think it has to be both. It has to be a combination between people of incredible charisma and courage and social movements of individuals who want to make things happen, forcing structural change. I think what's interesting about the Black Lives Matter movement at the moment globally is that it is, of course, wanting change in people's lives, but it's also seeking a real structural change in terms of some very clear demands around institutional changes about how The police function, how they're funded, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I'm a political scientist by training, and I've worked for most of my life before I became a writer on human rights. So, of course, I believe that the law really matters, and that structural change is is necessary. I've also learned through hard experience that legal change is not enough. Uh, In South Africa, we, you know, approached 1994 after Nelson Mandela was released, and we got the freedom that we had wanted for so long, and we have this incredible constitution which gives rights to everybody you know as an African country we were the first country in the world to enshrine the rights of gay people in a constitutional context and that's because you know the idea and the dream of South Africa was that never again would we allow anyone to be discriminated against the way black people had that when when you have been oppressed, you understand what it means for other people to be oppressed. And so you make sure that that doesn't happen. And so that I come certainly out of that tradition. And yet, of course, we know that in the last 25 years in South Africa, we haven't had the kind of change we want because the poverty of which Tony speaks continues to be the reality for the vast majority of Black South Africans. And similarly, you know, everywhere I have traveled in Australia, places where I have befriended Indigenous people, certainly they're you know, lots of middle class black fellows in this country, and there are plenty of people behind them who are not middle class. And so that continues to be a real struggle and a real challenge at a structure that responds to and reflects the fact that structural change is not happening in this country. And of course, we know that the vote, that citizenship only happened in this country in 1967. These are, it's easy to forget how recent the changes have been for black people in this country which speaks to the urgency of the need for structural change so absolutely i think both matter i think stories are important but i think stories can only take us so far and most importantly the sort of mainstream population of this country is really what needs to take on these issues and that in some ways only happens because of stories
0: you're listening to speaking out it just
2: comes down to showing sharing you know, respecting the world from an Indigenous
0: perspective on ABC Radio.
3: This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. How does storytelling have the ability to change human behaviour and bring about social change? That's the question we're exploring on Speaking Out this evening with award-winning authors Sasonke Massamung and Tony Birch. We'll continue the conversation shortly, but right now, let's hear some music. In 2019, singer-songwriter Alice Skye released her take on a Leah Flanagan classic. Here she is with Speak Your Language, a song she recorded for the ABC music compilation album Deadly Hearts 2.
0: of us I know what you are capable of You twist and turn my heart into anything, anything but oh but what would I do if I'm standing in same room, and I don't ever, ever wanna see you, see you.
3: That's Alice Skye with Speak Your Language. Let's return now to our conversation on the links between writing and activism. We'll pick up the conversation with Tony Birch, reflecting on the processes he employs when developing complex characters on the page and bringing them to life for his audience.
1: Well, I, one of the things I used to always tell students when I taught creative writing was that writers are very idiosyncratic creatures The way that we go about our work is very different, quite unique, although there are some things we do in common. So one of the things that is um, very important to me is that when I begin a novel and even a short story, I have to have a great understanding of the character before I write too much. So you mentioned the novel Blood. It was so important to me that the first thing I would do in making sure that that novel worked, which is in first person, was to get Jesse's voice pitch perfect or as pitch perfect as I could. And once I trusted his voice as a only a 13-year-old boy, but incredibly sort of world-weary 13-year-old boy, once I felt that I had his voice and his thought, I was confident in writing the novel. In regard to The White Girl, a third-person novel, but of course writing from this perspective or about primarily, well, not primarily, but certainly an Aboriginal grandmother, Odette, her granddaughter, Sissy were really important. And people say to me, "I oh, is it difficult for you to write a female character? And I would say, no, not at all, because I think partly as an observational writer, I, yeah, when I um, thought of Sissy, I've, I've had four girls who have turned 13, so I can think and reflect back on their mannerisms, their courage, their naivety, their love of their grandmother. And in Odette, I just literally, Odette was like a sort of a, an amalgam of so many Aboriginal women that I know. The real trick, though, or the issue for, as a writer is that while you might, there might be a reflection of real life people that inform your characters, you have to remember that Odette is unique. She is Odette. She's not just sort of a version of my grandmother or or my auntie. Sissy is not a version of my daughter, Erin or Siobhan or Grace or Nina. She is Sissy. So it's a lazy way to go about your work because then you're not creating a real three-dimensional character. So the, the first thing would be to say is I need to understand these characters three dimensionally. So I need to think about how, how I get walks. I need to think about how will she stand when she confronts a policeman. I need to think about a woman who is outwardly tough, but sort of inwardly, you know, very soft. And there's a moment um, in the bath scene where she just picks up a, a strand of um, Sissy's fringe and tucks it behind her here. So those little gestures of tenderness. So, For me, Larissa, it's about the relationship between voice, as you talked about, but I'm really, all my fiction writing is driven by two other issues. One is that place is important. Country is vital. So I don't use country or place as a backdrop to my storytelling. Country and place are essential characteristics of story. So when they live in the town of Dean in regional Australia, that town, that landscape and the history it holds, has a really important impact on how they behave and act. And the other one is I actually see my work in three-dimensional space. So when I'm imagining Sissy and Odette in that lovely little kitchen, that warm kitchen, I see that as a a space. So I'm thinking about how warm is it? How does it feel when when they eat their breakfast together? And, you know, my reader's unless they're my age, won't know about the attraction of having fried bread and dripping. But all my family, when my mum read it and my sisters read it, they were sort of all nostalgic for a piece of fried bread and dripping until they decided to have a piece the next day and it just didn't taste as good as it did when we were kids. So I think it, it, it gives your work authenticity, not because it's based on fact, which it isn't, but because it's based on characters that you give real life to that are not just reflections of other people. The situation is not just a reflection. You talked about, of course, dealing with issues like the legalities of identity and so forth. They're really important issues to the book. But it's got to be in how they how those issues impact on these characters as full characters. They're not just there to provide a historical lesson.
3: I guess it's a reflection of the strength of that power of getting the voice through that so many Aboriginal women, including myself, really responded to those characters as well in terms of lived experience. And and I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, we've focused a fair bit on your characters, but you do have a really strong sense of place in your books. I always feel like they're quite cinematic. They're what an Ivan Sen movie would be if it were a novel. So Sonke, I also wanted to explore your thoughts. You Speaking of resonating with Indigenous women, I had this article shared with me so many times that you recently had in The Guardian. And I, uh, it's called To Be a Black Mother is to manage the rage of others while growing joyous black children. This is no easy task. It was such a wonderful, reflective piece. And I wondered if you could share some of the thoughts that are in that piece with us. And as I said, if, if people want to Google it and read it in its entirety, I highly recommend it.
4: Thanks, Larissa. Yeah, I was um, surprised by how that piece sort of seemed to resonate with so so many people. It was great because it was one of those that I wrote that I didn't give a lot of thought to. It was kind of all there, you know? And I think it's part of mothering and part of, you know, mothering a black kid in a society that is often acting in ways that are really anti-black. And so, you know, what I found with my two, I have a, a girl and a boy, is that I am mindful that they are children and that, you know, every... Culture in every society around the world, childhood, ought to be a time of joy. It's when our brains are expanding, it's when we're learning, it's when we're experimenting, and that that experimentation in sort of human species terms is really about the joy of exploration. And so wanting to nurture that and to really give that the space that it deserves, and at the same time, you know, being an adult and realizing that the world is not always on their side you know I think when you were speaking Larissa the way you described it was to talk about racist assumptions and that that is what they certainly are butting their heads up against are are beginning to we're beginning to see the ways that people carry racist assumptions about them which have nothing to do with them Mm. and so I'm always trying to manage that on their behalf and dreading the day when I will not be able to manage it on their behalf and so having to think carefully about when the rubber hits the road and when we have to allow them to grow up a little bit. I was lucky, you, you asked at the beginning about, you know, my own background and upbringing. When I was a kid, we moved to Canada and I was 10. I was 10 years old when we moved to Canada and I had lived in different African countries my whole life. So it was the first time I had been anywhere where I was a minority And this is the privilege of being an African who grows up in Africa. And suddenly we were like the only ones. And so I had never experienced what that felt like before. And so I get teased in a playground at school on one of my first days and get called a monkey. And it was really humiliating. It was a very shameful kind of experience. And I go home and I tell my mom and my father gets home from work and we sit down to talk about it and I'm in tears. And you know, he's a freedom fighter. And he's like, what are you crying about? <laughs> what, yeah, what are these tears? He is totally unsympathetic, you know. Uh, and he says, Are you a monkey? And, you know, and I'm not a monkey. And he says, So if you're not a monkey, what are you crying about? That's that person's problem. You don't own that, right? Don't own problems that someone else creates that are not yours, right? And so we go to school the next day, and he insists, he says, You know, I did not come to this country as a refugee escaping South Africa in order for someone to tell my child to racially abuse my child. That's not going to happen. Not, at, you know, not on my watch. So we have this whole, you know, complicated sort of production, which I will tell you both about one day over wine when we can see each other in real life. But what the upshot was that my dad insisted that the class apologized to me and I got the apology. And as a 10 year old African kid to stand in front of a classroom of white kids who all were forced to stand up, because my dad insisted that I am owed an apology because the problem of racism was not mine, was an incredibly powerful thing that shifted forever my capacity to not accept it when someone calls me that. So that doesn't mean I go around fighting it every time because there's a limited amount of energy that all of us have. But what it does mean is that it doesn't penetrate. It doesn't come inside me when someone says that, something horrible to me, I have a kind of shield from that day because I know that I'm owed an apology and that I'm not the shameful one. I haven't done anything wrong. And so for me, that's the thing that I carry in terms of how I think about parenting, that what is that shield that I can help to give my kids? And the problem with violence is that there is a moment at which that shield stops. And the problem with this country in particular is that even me with my kids who are a particular kind of brown, a particular kind of black kid, when it comes to indigenous people, there is no, no one is going to stop. No one is necessarily going to stop and safeguard the life of an indigenous kid. So certainly my kind of brown is a different it has a certain measure of protection that indigenous people in this country simply don't have. And so this is the problem of violence that I think that this country still has to confront. And that's a, a different level of anger and hatred and vitriol towards indigenous people that other black people in this country don't have to deal with. And so I know kind of how it feels, but I don't know. I think it runs much, much deeper. And we see that in lots of ways all the time.
3: Thank you, thank you for those reflections. Finally, I wanted to ask you both about your thoughts around this Black Lives Matter moment. As I mentioned earlier, we've been campaigning around these issues for decades and decades, it feels like my whole lifetime. So I was just interested in your thoughts of why this moment has happened now, what's created your thoughts around the dynamic of now and whether you're optimistic that things will be different in the
4: future. And I'll start with you, Sasanke. So I think it's now again. I think we've seen these moments periodically. I'm old enough to remember the Rodney King. I I moved to America in that year that Rodney King was violently attacked and then let off the hook. So I think it is different this time because of the global scope of it. I'm not optimistic, but I'm not pessimistic either. And so I think what Black people everywhere in the world have always done is that we recognize that the blues is what gives us rhythm. So there are constantly blues. Uh, The blues is the violence, is the racism, are the things that we have always had to deal with. And the rhythm is how we respond to that, how we think about that, how we weave, how we continue to live and strive and keep our heads above water in spite of that. And I think that what we are witnessing right now is a moment in which the blues and the rhythm are coming together in particular ways. And right now it feels like the rhythm is winning and that's, you know, really good. But we know that this is part of the meaning of what it is in terms of global blackness, what it means to be a black person in the world, given the nature systemic and global nature of racism, is to constantly have to fight this fight. So I suppose what I will say is that this is a moment in which we can catch our breath and recognize that there are new people who are marching with us, and that's wonderful. And if they continue to march with us, that's fantastic. And if some of them get tired, that's not also going to surprise. And so I think in the words of Donald J. Trump and Michelle Obama, it is what it is. Tony?
1: Yeah, I I suppose I'm not a pessimist or an optimist, but I'm sceptical. I think, um, as Asanke said, I mean, there there have been great historical moments of activism, particularly around Black Lives Matter in the US, under different names, of course, for a lot of the 20th century this is a global movement i think i don't know to what extent the spread of the narrative is is helpful because of um social media i think it plays some sort of role i've also of course been um enlivened by seeing the level of protest and the growth of the movement so i wouldn't want to be um pessimistic about that and you don't want to be down on people who are out in the street putting their bodies on the line and trying to recruit people and of course as a someone who advocates for human rights I, i see this as vital what's happening I suppose I'd have two things to say that I think are relevant to me. One thing is that we've shown great support of the Black Lives Matter movement globally in Australia and also talked and and marched and discussed how it pertains to Australia, and we need to consider that. Larissa, you talked about the issue around child removals. If you're an Indigenous person in any country in the world, there is a very particular issue here, and that is the relationship between settler colonisation and racism. And I see a direct relationship to violence against people and violence against land as being interlinked. So settler societies are determined to not only destroy land, but to destroy people, to destroy families. And, you know, when you talk, Larissa, about your documentary and you think, well, how could people allow this to happen? I think it is still about the violence, inherent violence in, in colonial societies. And I suppose the other thing where my scepticism or my, my anxiety comes in is that very... At times in in what we might call protest movement history, particular issues will get a lot of space and we're demanding space for this issue at the moment. So I'm not suggesting, oh, yeah, the media will say, okay, that's a sexy issue, we'll put it on television. People are demanding space through punching a hole and working really hard. But while we were sitting here, I'm thinking about, at the moment, the still terrible, disgraceful levels of violence against refugees globally. Some, of course, many who are people of colour, of different identities of colour, and how that issue seems to be falling us off to one side at the moment. So there were shocking fires recently in Europe. We know that refugees are drowning at greater numbers again in the Mediterranean. We know that in the Australian context, we still have a terrible situation with refugees who have been incarcerated for many, many years. And it's as if those voices, because we can't get access to them, and again, going back to storytelling, we are still not hearing those stories enough. So I would hope that the knock-on effect and energy of the Black Lives Matter movement as a global phenomenon finds or we have the ability to have a big boat or to create a big house because I know that every one of us can't do all the the, the graft and, you know, Sosenko was talking about those incredible women and talking about guerrilla fighters. We can't take up every struggle, but I would like to think that there are enough of us involved in these issues to ensure that we we don't forget other people who are, who don't have any spokesperson for them at the moment, and I I really feel for for refugee communities globally who who have little little access to the media, little access to voice, and we need to find a way to to continue to ensure that they get they get to tell their story as well. That yeah, you know, I don't that we're not speaking for them, that they get to tell their story.
3: You've been listening to authors Tony Birch and Sisonke Masamung. They were speaking at an event held recently online and facilitated by the Deborah Cass Prize for writing. Well, as you've just heard, truth in storytelling can be a powerful tool when advocating for social change and how best to illustrate its potential other than with a reading by one of the authors you've just heard from. This is Tony Birch with an excerpt from his widely acclaimed novel, The White
1: Girl. So this is a scene from The White Girl when Odette and Sissy are back at the house and it's the evening before Odette has to leave Sissy alone and go to the hospital because she's got a serious illness that she is hiding from her granddaughter and she's also fearful for her granddaughter's safety while she's away because Odette knows that her granddaughter has come to the attention of the local policeman in the town of Dean. I need to tell you something sweet. The reason I'm having the bath tonight is that I have to go to the hospital in Gatlin tomorrow. I'll need to catch the early bus and will have no time to wash in the morning. Sissy frowned. Why are you going to the hospital? Remember I saw the doctor in town last week? Oh, yeah. Well, he told me I had to have an x-ray. What will they be x-raying, Sissy asked. Just my leg, Odette Lied. I have a sore leg. When did you hurt your leg? I never really hurt it, it's just worn out over the years, the bones, the doctor thinks. Will it hurt you, the x-ray? Sissy asked. Adette rested a hand on Sissy's shoulder. Stay still, love. I need some help to get out of this tub. And no, the x-ray won't hurt. The machine takes a picture of the inside of your body. That's all it does. And did he say what they would do at the hospital to fix your leg? Sissy asked. Adette tousled Sissy's hair. It's always questions with you, isn't it? Don't worry yourself over me. Hey, it's getting cold out. We'll have an early night tonight and listen to the radio. Later that night, lying in bed, Sissy listened as Odette explained what her granddaughter was to do while she was away in Gatlin. I don't expect I'll be back until late at night. You be sure to come straight back here after school, won't you? I always do, Nan. And the spare key to the door, I'll tie it with some string and leave it on the kitchen table for you. Before you leave for school, you hang the key around your neck and leave it there for the day. You'll be sure not to lose it, won't you? Sissy couldn't understand why our grandma was fussing so much. We never use the key for the door, Nan. Well, I want you to use it tomorrow. You lock the door when you leave the house for school again, and when you come home, you put the key back on the table. Why would I lock the door when I'm in the house, Sissy asked, suddenly a little anxious. She thought back to the Sunday morning she'd seen the shadowy figure out in the street through the front window and realised it could only have been the new policeman in town. Because I'm telling you to, Odette said, that's why. Like I've just explained to you, I don't expect to be back here until after dark. She took hold of Sissy's hand. There's bread and cheese and biscuits too. If you want to make yourself something warm, there are tins of beans in the pantry. Sissy squeezed her grandmother's hand, attempting to reassure her that she would be fine. I'll wait for you for tea, Nan. I don't want to eat until you get home. Please yourself then, Odette said. Sissy rested her head on the pillow and listened to her grandmother's deep, slow breaths as she drifted off to sleep.
3: And that was author Tony Birch with an excerpt from his novel, The White Girl, which was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award earlier this year. You also heard from author and political analyst Sasanke Masamang. And a quick thank you to Dan Cass, Secretary of the Deborah Cass Prize for writing, for helping to facilitate the discussion. The recipients of this year's award will be announced later this year. And that's all we have time for this evening. But to take us out, we'll leave you with some music from Uncle Jimmy Little. This is his version of the classic church song, Under the Milky Way.
2: Sometimes when this place gets kind of empty Sound of the breath fades with the light Think about Loveless fascination Under the Milky Way Shimmering and white It leads you here Despite your destiny But your destiny
3: That was Uncle Jimmy Little with Under the Milky Way. And that's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we bring you more of the best from Indigenous Australia. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out.